My name is Tom Chick, and I am not playing uh, photosynthesis. And my name is Asan Lopez, and I'm not playing Vindication. And my name is Mike Pullman, and I am not playing Sheriff of Nottingham. Oh my God, I have such a weird relationship with Sheriff of Nottingham. I do. Do you guys know Sheriff? Like, how well do you guys know Sheriff oh, of I, Nottingham? I know it very well. Yeah, yeah, pretty well. I, I got rid of my copy. Why? Why did you do that, Hassan? Because I might have to do the same. Why did you do that? Um, it was very hit or miss for me. I had a couple really successful evenings of it, and I was like, oh yeah, I'm gonna keep this one in my collection forever. Bluffing, it's fun. And then I had a couple really just bombs where I, I didn't enjoy the game at all and didn't think it worked well. So, I uh, interesting. Like I, I'm not sure if it works well, but what I do know is that it has revealed to me that there are people in my gaming group who are 100% capable of seeing through me. Uh, and, and it's so infuriating because I, you know, I don't, I, I don't mean to brag or anything, but I, I come from an acting background. I should be able to bluff. I should rock at bluffing games. I can trick people. I can lie. I can make them feel things. I don't feel like I, I was an actor at one point. So when I play Sheriff of Nottingham and someone 100% without fail always knows when I'm bluffing, it's infuriating. I cannot, that game drives me batty. Ugh. <laughs> My wife so my, won't play it because she doesn't like having to lie to people so like all these social games she just never wants to play i have a really good friend who's like so good natured that he he hates games or he might be a traitor he might have to lie to someone and like yeah it legitimately and we were kind of just like oh that's that's really cute but he it legitimately makes him anxious and he doesn't like those kinds of games yeah Um, the other day we were playing uh uh, betrayal legacy mm-hmm. and my wife got to be the traitor and she's mm. like oh i don't want to do this <laughs> <laughs> and i i hope you guys made her and that's part of the game right right we did yeah did, did she win uh she did not yeah well there you go all right so uh if you are not playing sheriff of nottingham anymore mike tell us actually you know what we should start with the 800 pound retail gorilla in the room and let Hassan tell us what he is playing. Um, okay, well, that, that's fair. And and I'm going to try to control myself because I think there's just so much to talk about with this mm-hmm. game. Um, there's so much to discuss and argue. And generally speaking, I think that says something um, interesting about this game and its value to the board game world. But I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to talk about Tapestry this week. Mm-hmm. I got my copy. I played it um, with my game group. I've played it solo a couple of times. I am firmly convinced that it's trying to do something very interesting and it succeeds for some, it fails for others. It's an extraordinarily divisive game. Um, I, I don't know what that says about it, but it was certainly divisive in my group where a, a couple of us became, I think, quickly enamored with it. One guy hates it and probably would not want to play it again. Um, I think, and that is, I think, reflective of the, a lot of people's response to this game. Do you guys have experience playing it? Uh, not yet. It's not in retail yet. Um, I tend to have a similar opinion on lots of Stonemaier games, but I'll, I'll leave that out of it for now. <laughs> I, I got to see a copy of it um, from a friend of mine who was super eager to, to play it, and I think she got hers at uh, Gen Con. I'd, anyway, she ended up with, with a copy of it now. Uh, she played it uh, and then really didn't like it, and in explaining to me why she didn't like it made me 
want to play it. So uh, she brought it over, and unfortunately we didn't play it. Something else came up. But now I'm, I'm really torn because she soured on it, but I looked through it and thought it looked kind of awesome. Uh, so, Hassan, what should I do? I think I think you have to play it. I really do. I think that I don't think you will know how you react to Tapestry until you play it. And I, I minimally think that it's an interesting game to talk about. Um, so, so there's so what's that. the overview? Like, what? Tell us in case somebody doesn't know what Tapestry is. What's the the thumbnail description? Sure. So this is a, a design by Jamie Stagmeyer. Um, so it's published by Stonemeyer Games, and the the single like bullet one-line description of it is that it's a civilization game in quotes that plays in two hours or so so he this is this is jamie's attempt to make that kind of um you know holy grail type civ game that you can play relatively quickly in an evening and yet gives you a feeling of building an empire and having a satisfying historical uh sort of story or narrative play out it is it's it's touted a couple things that i think increased people's excitement about it or buzz it has a four-page rule book um and that is linked to what i would what he argues and i would agree with it has a a high depth to complexity ratio i think this is not a difficult game to learn there's there's some icon iconography that's tough to maybe wrap your head around at first but once you get that the the actual sort of turn to turn motions that you engage in are pretty straightforward and yet there is a lot of hidden depth to explore in it um mm -hmm. It's got the the classic Stonemeyer beautiful components, um, graphic design that in theory is supposed to facilitate play, like things that I think he's been trying to infuse in all of their products over the past couple of years. And um, I think it's I think it's fair to say that he is he has largely succeeded in those goals. But again, there's going there's elements to this game that are just not going to agree with people. I, I think it's a really it's actually quite a weird game, and I think that one of the reasons it's been so divisive is that people maybe went in with particular expectations, and then you play it, and it's so odd that that it, it makes you feel, um, for some people, unsatisfied afterwards. Now, you what, what you're describing so far sounds relatively safe. Uh, right. But uh, and and one of the things that struck me looking through it is for a game that starts with you discovering fire and presumably ends with you even able to I think colonize space. Uh, right. For a game with that breadth, uh, I was really surprised looking through the bits and pieces how much specificity there is in things like you can invent uh, eyeglasses, for instance. Uh, right. There's there's a lot of little. Uh, detail in something with such a wide sweep uh, that I found that really intriguing. Uh, is that any part of the oddness? It is. It is. And I, I think it ties into probably one of the core um, issues with the game that some people are going to jive with and some people aren't, which is that there really is a ton of abstraction in the game, right? I, I think, you know, last time we were t we got together, Tom, we were talking with Bruce about you know, Civ games in general and how in an attempt to make a 
Civ game that doesn't take eight hours or 12 hours, you, you, certain sacrifices need to be made. Things have to be abstracted, right? Like, I mean, that's sort of the case with, with any board game, really. That's not trying to be a detailed historical simulation. And in, in, with Tapestry, Jamie really has gone, I, you know, I think much further on the Euro abstraction part of the spectrum than, than what you would expect to see maybe in a, a Meritrashy Civ game, like something like Sid Meier's Civilization, right, put out mm -hmm. by Fantasy Flight. And, you know, one, one aspect of that, for example, is that you, on your turn, really, like the majority of the game, you're doing something quite simple. You're choosing a single track to go up, and there's four tracks in the game. There's science, technology, conquest, and exploration. And you very simply move your piece up one space on each of these tracks, and then you take whatever actions are associated with that movement. It's really easy to teach this game. And again, once people wrap their heads around the, the icons, which in a sense have been downloaded onto the board so that the rule book can be only four pages, right? Um, it's, it's pretty easy to figure this out. But the, the issue, just as an example of abstraction, you know, you'll march up these tracks and be discovering things, but they're really, they really don't have any link to something real. So just as an example, like on the science tract, there is a spot that's neuroscience. Like you can discover neuroscience. Now I'm a neuroscientist, so I was really intrigued to see, okay, in tapestry, <laughs> if you discover neuroscience, what does that mean exactly? And the effect of that space, is just has nothing to do with neuroscience it basically lets you regress one space on either the conquest or technology track and gain the bonus of that space right there's absolutely no thematic tie-in there to the reality of neuroscience and so the neuroscience in this game is just back up and take a bonus <laughs> that i already got once like is yeah, that the idea? And it, okay. in either conquest or technology exactly right and and that actually is a cool thing to be able to do like strategically there are times when you actually do want to regress i think that that's part of you know something clever that you can do in the game but if you're looking for a game where you're discovering biology or neuroscience or you discover tanks um, or eyeglasses and that that has a, a clear thematic connection to something that this is not this is not that game um i'm kind of reminded do you guys know carl chudik's uh, game innovation yeah 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 i'm kind of reminded of how uh, the pains he took in that and some of it felt forced but some of it also felt clever where within the the fairly simple vocabulary of playing these cards and changing the rules he would give them names like uh like i remember you could discover the or uh o a r uh, and I don't, I could never quite figure out what he was getting at with what the card actually did. But because it was only the cards and only the rules, it felt simple enough that this abstraction, if you just wanted to slap a name on it, it, it was okay. He wasn't really trying to model going your nation going from a caveman to a spacefaring uh, civilization. Uh, but but yeah, like it just felt like, like like how do you express the sweep of history within a rule set? Uh, right. And yeah, so neuroscience is. I get my military bonus again. All right. Right. And and you know that 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 kind of abstraction is it, it permeates throughout the entire design. Like that's just one example. But mm -hmm. you know for you know like in terms of um, you know one of the core elements of Civ games is that there's map exploration. And and Jamie's put that in this game. So you when you take an explore action, for example, you have some tiles. You can 
lay them out on this map that sort of grows and evolves over the course of the game. And when you place that tile, you get a few victory points for it, but you also garner a resource that might be listed on that tile. And there's a very limited number of resources in the game. Um, but that's really it, you know, and it, it doesn't, if people are hoping to have an experience of kind of discovering a, a planet and exciting continents and engaging in interesting sort of narrative experiences on that map, or even really interacting with your opponents in a really um, interesting way, like in a right. direct conquest warfare type of way. This, again, this game will not give that to you. There are games that are going to do that much better than this one. That was one of my friend's complaints is that uh, there there didn't seem to be the, the, the kind of player interaction we expect in this definitely just wasn't present. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and, and that I think is a legitimate uh like like Mike was saying that he has issues with, with Stonemeyer games and I think that I, I I understand some some of those concerns and one of them is that Jamie really has I think and I think he's expressed this very clearly, he doesn't like negative player interaction, what he calls negative player interaction. He in his designs likes positive interaction. Like for mm-hmm. example, um in Tapestry I might play a card that gives me three resources but it gives each of my neighbors a resource as well right and it's kind of representing i guess cultural diffusion of knowledge or whatever right um but if you're the type of player and i'm definitely one of those that likes to smash my opponents in the mouth and just take something from them and watch them cry then he is not your designer right he Mm -hmm. he doesn't like that he and that i guess that's kind of euro-y i mean it makes it makes it feel like europeans don't like to beat each other up i don't know if that's true or not (laughs) historically speaking they've had a fair amount of it uh well but but hassan there is a track called conquest though what what are you conquering if not the other players there is, and and it and to me it actually works pretty well because um, it when you conquer a territory it lets you put this cool little, you know, tower on it and you're now exerting control over that territory, and you can spread. So it, just exploring a tile, in other words, doesn't give you control over it. It's like you've sent your explorers over there. You're, you know, um, but they you haven't you haven't exerted national control over that territory. Um, but then you can put your little conquest token on there, and then you do. And and if you focus your strategy on conquest and um, uncovering bonuses that give you points for the more territories you control, that can become a major VP engine for you. This game is very much about choosing a strategy or two and then maximizing your points from that strategy through through making an efficient engine towards that strategy. It, it behooves you to think carefully about what you want to do and, and create something around it. Um, you can attack one of your opponents. Like uh, I'll say, you know, in our, in our game that we played, our four-player game, I was playing a sieve that, that kind of pushed me to a conquest strategy, and I was doing it very successfully. And then towards the end of the game, one of the other players, his sieve just sort of transferred into a conquest um, strategy and he's just started taking my territory back and it really ended up um, hamstringing me in the end game which was really interesting and it did kind of have a historical narrative feel to it so I, I do think it works I just don't think 
if you're expecting there to be lots of different unit types and right. uh, we've got tanks versus cavalry, you're not going to get any of that shit in here, right? It's it's really abstracted. Now, one of the first things that someone will notice going through the box, uh, and I think this is in all the copies of the game, is there are fairly elaborately painted miniatures of – are they wonders of the world or buildings or what – what are all those little buildings in the bottom of the box? Yeah, he he calls them landmarks, but they really are, in a sense, the wonders within this game, right? So it's another check checkbox that you can say, oh, that a Civ game needs wonders. And yet again, they're I think they're quite divisive because you look at those and you're like, oh, these have to be awesome. Like, right. I can build, you know, a space shuttle, yeah. right? And that's got to do something cool. Um, no, it doesn't do anything cool. It really, the the value of landmarks is that they take up a lot of spaces in your little home capital. So you have this little mini game going on where you're building up your capital by placing buildings in it and landmarks. And when you kind of complete little regions of your capital city, you get bonuses, you get resource bonuses. Now those actually end up being really important in success in the game. So it's an important mini game, and I would argue that it's actually pretty well integrated with the rest of the game. But um, it, it, it means that your city is also a, a, an abstraction. Like at the end of the game, I look at my city and I'm like, oh, there's my space station and there's this, and my city does something than your city. Now, it doesn't have that feel at all. Right. Um, Right. It sounds like it's just a, a a grid and stuff covers it. And as the stuff get covered gets covered, you earn something and then don't care about it. Like a, you, right. you just care about blocking out places, uh, bits of the grid. Yeah. That's right. And yeah, I think um, Jamie said that he was that part of the puzzle. He was kind of inspired by Uwe Rosenberg's recent string of games where um, you're you're sort of covering up patterns of things and in order to gain bonuses or victory points and right he became fond of that idea and wanted to incorporate it in this game so another thing that really struck me going through it uh you don't have conventional civilizations like you're not playing japan and russia or anything but you get a uh, a sort of a describer or something, I, I think. Like one of my, my my friend who played it, she was, I think, the entertainers. Right. Uh, so right. so th- th- it looks like you're starting with a civilization ethic or, or concept or theme that gives you a lot of asymmetry up front. Is, is that true? And how does that work? It is true. And I think I really like it. Um, it was touted as an element of the game that's going to give it high replayability and you're going to want to play around with all the different sieves, and I totally agree with that. And I, I like the fact that he's not he hasn't made a sieve game that is clearly linked to our historical Earth. It's mm-hmm. a it's an it's another planet, really, that shares odd similarities to our own like they invented eyeglasses too and warships but they maybe did it in a really weird way right like you might invent warships right after fire and then you know it, it doesn't make any um, historical sense compared to our timeline right mm-hmm. um, and so in that sense it kind of has an odd fantasy feel to it which is i think successful um I will say, and this sort of leads to, I think, the other really divisive and odd element of Tapestry, which is that for a game that is very Eurogamey and very abstracted and obviously, you know, well-tuned, because this is another thing that, that Stagmire, that, that their games, they always like to brag about, is that they've gone through thousands and thousands of playtests, um, that 
both the civilizations in this game and the game's eponymous tapestry cards, which play a big role in your strategy. They're kind of like big um, bonuses that you'll reveal over the course of the game. They, they, they layer on an additional sense of flavor and strategy to your unique civilization. Um, while they are unique and super interesting, they are they they don't appear to be balanced, and a lot of people have complained about this, and it leads to a couple. That is, that is one of the last things I would expect to have heard about this game, by the way. Yeah, yeah, and and that's why I say like this is such a weird game to talk about and think about because yeah, exactly, you wouldn't expect that to be the case, and yet they really are so in some cases you know, clearly. Bizarrely imbalanced, and I think one of the big problems. I don't necessarily have an issue with imbalance, and I think I've said this before. I think one negative consequence of it, though, is that the the final range in players' scores tends to be pretty broad. It is not uncommon for you know in a four-player game, one person to end up with you know three hundred plus in a score, and another person to have like a hundred. You know, yeah. or just barely a hundred, right? And is that clear as you're playing? By the way, is it the sort of the is it the sort of game where that 300 pointer guy knows he's running away with it, and the 100 pointer knows that she doesn't have a chance? Not necessarily. No, okay. I, this is a game that ramps up score wise exponentially, and I, that at first it kind of bothered me, and now I got over it. Which is that early in the game, you'll do a move, and you'll be like, "Oh, I got six points from this. I feel really good." <laughs> and then at the end, you're like, "You're doing things that give you like 50 points," and you're like, "Well, well, well why the fuck was I spending right. <laughs> so much time on that six point move early in the game, right?" right. Um, but because of that, it means that you really don't know who's going to win till the end. Now, the the one big exception to this, and this might be a real make it break it for some people, is that this is also a game where some players finish the game literally before other people do. So your civilization can just be done right. and your your score is tallied and then you might just have to walk away from the table while everyone else continues to play for another half an hour. Right, right? like you hit a threshold or a goal or something and then you're done. So there's this, yeah, like yeah. you can close out your game while other people still have turns to go, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the, one of the guys who really, in my group, who disliked it, he disliked it for a number of really um, reasonable concerns. Um, and he didn't like, he didn't feel that there was a civ narrative at all. He felt very mm -hmm. disconnected from the theme. Um, he didn't like the city minigame very much. But he was especially upset that like his game ended earlier than ours, yeah. and he, he was just like done. And then he just it's so, in an era where we really poo-poo games with player elimination, um, this game kind of feels like that. Like if you end much sooner than everybody else, that usually means your score is going to be lower than them. So it usually means you're going to oh. be out of the run. Yeah. And then you have to watch everybody else just crank up more points. Right. 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 Yeah. Now, uh, so uh, all of the sort of pros and cons I've heard and the, the various opinions, what, what I think I've ultimately come away with, Hassan, uh, is this idea of asymmetry in a relatively simple context, which might have some issues in a multiplayer game. Uh, I kind of want to play it almost as a solitaire score chase kind of game, where yeah. I try the different uh, – are they called factions or nations? Or what do, you, what do you call the beginning card that you get? 
Uh, I think they're called civilization cards, okay. actually. Yeah. Where, where I try the different civilization cards, which offer me different kinds of tools for how to work through this, this abstracted game. Like, I feel like, as a solitaire game, each of those civilization cards would feel different and would make me want to try them and see how well I could do with them solo. Uh, how did it work as a solitaire game? I, I really love it. Yeah, I... I... I don't know if I would say it's it's worth it to buy just for solo. It, it really only in part because it's an expensive game, right? right. Um, we're talking a, a ninety hundred dollar game here, but I I love it as a solitaire game. I've I've played it three times. Um, each time I really enjoyed it. I picked a different sieve each time, and I, Tom, I I affirm what you're saying is that it feels like it's a different puzzle each time. Um, I feel that the game balances the you know, like the the issue with with asymmetrical factions is you don't want to you don't want them to feel like they're shoehorning you into a strategy that you can't break out of, mm-hmm. and and they still allow you some flexibility to explore. And I think he's balanced that actually pretty successfully here. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, there. I'm curious. So, is it, are, are you playing against like is it the typical automa thing where you just flip up a card and the AI does random things, or is there any uh, what what kind of solution is there for the fact that you're playing solitaire and there's no one else at the table? Yeah, there's a, there's an automata deck and it's pretty. I would say it's pretty well designed. Uh, okay. It's not purely random. This is that same automata factory folks that Jamie's been working on for several of his games, and I think mm-hmm. they. I do think they did a really nice job with this with this manifestation of it. It each when you when you choose your automata at the beginning of the game, it has kind of a a goal or trajectory. Like it might be a militant automata, so it's not the same as giving it a unique civilization, but it has an overarching strategic goal, and that kind of guides its choices at times in the game. Um, right, it, right. it will it will kind of burrow down on one of the tracks, for example, and that will cause it to pursue like a, a heavy, you know, a conquest strategy. Right. And it's vicious. It um, it's it's mean. It's it's designed to kind of come at you, and it's designed to go after the the big bonuses faster than than you can. It's designed to get to the monuments faster than you can. So it puts up a really good fight actually okay. and not surprisingly there's lots of ways to modify its um, difficulty setting right. so. now uh, Mike is there oh I'm sorry go ahead Mike I was gonna say how many players did you play with for the uh, for uh, when you were playing multiplayer we played a, a four-player game which mm-hmm. which felt good I, I think that um, I think you know, I don't know. It, it felt that felt really interactive to us, and I felt that there was an interesting number where each of our civilizations was doing a different thing, and it was kind of fun to see how they all played out against each other. Is it a two to four player game, or is it like Scythe, where you can theoretically go up to six? It's one to five right now, so you could play okay. it with five. And I have heard some reviewers say that they love it at five. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I mean. I guess my final word on it is that I, I, I my, I'm pretty, I'm pretty enamored with it right now. I think it's an extraordinarily clever, and intricate uh, design. I think that, that what he's kind of able to pull out of this from from a relatively simple set of systems is is pretty fascinating. It's one of those games where you're like you're, you're excited to explore it, um, right. and maybe the best way to explore it is solitaire. Um, right. I don't, yeah, I don't know. 
Uh, now, Mike, as, a, as someone who uh, runs a retail store, uh, mm-hmm. when will this be in the channels? And do you have a sense if this might have similar issues that, that Wingspan had? I hope it doesn't have the same issues as Wingspan as far as production runs and stuff, but I don't know. Um, okay. Right now, the only way to get it is directly from Stonemeyer's site, as far as I know. Um, so I have it on you know, pre-order for whenever we can get it, but I don't know when that's going to be. And do you, do, do you get uh, much of a sense of demand for it? Like, do, do you get a lot of people asking about it? Yeah, I have a fair number of people on the wait list for it already. Maybe, okay. you know, half dozen, so. All right. All right, so uh, Tapestry. I uh, still don't quite know what to think, but I'm intrigued. So. Uh, okay, let me uh, tell you guys real quick what I played, because uh, this is also a new game. Uh, it taught me a new word. Uh, actually, it's one of two board games that has taught me a new word. One of them is called Petrichor. Uh, do you guys know what Petrichor is? Y- you literally play as a rain cloud. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Petrichor is the word for, I think, the smell of earth that has freshly been rained on. Uh, mm-hmm. The other game that taught me a word is this new game called Bosk, which is a B-O-S-K, which is apparently the name for a small cluster of trees. Uh, and it's a, it's a super Euro. It's What's immediately appealing about it is it's got an autumn palette with the colors. You don't have your traditional uh, red, yellow, green, blue. You're playing a brown and an orange and, and a sort of a muted red. Uh, so it's very much about trees in autumn. And it's a grid, very straightforward. Look at the board and there's a grid, but there's a, a weird patchwork of colored territories underneath it but when you first sit down to play bosk ignore those colored territories seriously don't even think about them just look at the grid and you are given uh, these little tree standees and they're standees that are comprised of two pieces of cardboard uh, slid perpendicular to each other so it looks like a little standing cross of 2d two 2d planes perpendicular to each other and you put the the, like the um, photosynthesis trees Yes, exactly. Exactly like the photosynthesis trees. But you put these trees on the vertices. Is that what you call the intersection between the squares? But you put them on the little intersections between the squares, uh, and it's a kind of a territory control game where each tree has a number on it from one to four, and I'm putting my trees. We're taking turns putting our trees down, and whoever gets the most tree numbers for each column and row scores that column or row. It's very simple. Um, here's a weird thing. The the tree pieces are perpendicular, but the numbers are only printed on one of the cards back and front. Meaning, if I am standing, like looking north to south or south to north, I can see the number of the tree. But if I am on the side of the board that looks east to west or west to east, I can't see the number on the tree because it's on the other piece of cardboard. And do you guys know what the solution is to this? Hmm. Turn, turn the tree di- diagonal. Right. But then they're not lined up with the grid. Exactly. So <laughs> my, my thinking was when uh, when Sharon was teaching us the game, she was saying, yeah, I know, you can't see the numbers. And then I turned it sideways and was like, well, just do that. And she's like, oh, yeah. And it, it occurred to me, why didn't she think of that? And in the rules, it shows you putting them lined up with the lines. So it's <laughs> right. almost like they didn't know that in the rules. But yeah. Yeah. So at any rate, you play this super simple game. You then score it. Uh, there's this silly conceit of there's a hiker marching around the park and he scores each row in each column for you. Uh, and that's Bosk. But here's the weird thing about Bosk and why I think I really am not into it. That's only the first half of the game. Because then 
you play a whole other separate game. Now, it's related to the game you just played. All those trees we put down there, we are taking turns now scattering leaf tokens of varying strengths in a wind direction radiating out from a chosen tree. And now these leaf tokens get put on the board and they're trying to control that patchwork of colored territories that I told you to ignore in the first half of the game. Now, trying to be the have the most leafs on that territory it's a, it's a it's a territory control game at this point and it's super brutally interactive where you cover each other's leaves and you're you're sort of uh you're you get a squirrel that can knock that can uh lock down a square and nobody can put a leaf there anymore um and as each tree spits out leaves you take it off the board so you're choosing a tree at a given wind direction that you can't really control, and then you're spitting out your leaves and you're taking that tree off. And we each get to do that once for each of our trees. We've each got eight trees. Um, and and it's it's it scores. It's, it's like uh, you were talking about before, Hassan, where you're concentrating on getting those six victory points, but then later on you get 50 victory points. It scores like way, way more than the first half of the game to the point that you might think the first half of the game why was that even relevant? Well, it's partly relevant because it determines where you can spit out your leaves, but the scoring back then that you were fussing over seems really trivial compared to the points you're making now. Um, so it got me thinking, this whole idea of games in two acts, like games where you play different halves that are, are of, of sort of questionable relationship to each other thematically, like why is that? I, I don't think that's a good idea, ultimately. Now, I know some people, I can appreciate that some people uh, like Bosk. It's certainly a pretty game. Uh, if you want to play uh, a gentle kind of competing for columns and rows game, followed by a brutal territory control game, well, it gives you that. Uh, but this whole idea of these two game halves, these two acts, uh, I'm not really sold on. And it occurred to me... I, there's a re I, I don't think many, if any, games really do that. Like, can, can you guys of, think of... Go ahead. I can think of two, but they're uh -huh. both uh, movie-related. Uh, one is Big Trouble in Little China. Mm -hmm. has you uh, on one side of the board running around the streets and fighting the gang members. And then you flip the board over halfway through and you're in Lopan's lair. Okay. Uh, and then the other one is the Die Hard game, which has three acts kind ah. of mimicking the movie. And it's this unfolding board where there's you're using a quarter of it and then a half, then the whole thing on the other side. Uh, Mike, this is. Would you say that those? Would you say that those acts play differently though, in in the sense that the rule set changes dramatically between the acts? Um, yeah, or are not, you just changing a map? It's. I mean, there are some differences, but in both games, you're still using the primary mechanic. Uh, you know, in Big Trouble in Little China, you're still allocating dice, and in um, Die Hard, you still have the same kind of interaction of cards and uh, the bad guys trying to open the safe. The one that uh, I thought you were going to mention, Mike, the movie-themed one, there's a Jaws board game, which starts out as a hidden movement game, and then you flip the board, and you're playing, instead of the shark swimming around the island eating people, you're playing uh, the three main characters on the boat fighting the shark, and it becomes a kind of a, the shark eats the boat out from underneath the characters, and the characters try to kill the shark. Uh, but again, two completely separate rule sets, two completely different games, how you play the first hidden movement shark-eating game determines, I think, like how many hit points the shark has in the second half of the game. Mm -hmm. right. um, but uh, I, I don't think... Uh, yeah, I'm just not sure that's a good idea. 
although it does remind me of a computer game uh, that Firaxis made, uh, actually Microprose before them, called Colonization, where it's, it plays very much like Civilization, where you're conquering a continent and you're growing your colony but at a certain point the home country which keeps making demands on you uh, you have to declare independence and then they come attack you so <laughs> colonization is all about preparing yourself for that second half or that finale of the game which is a great grand war game on this map that you've created and in colonization I think it's a beautiful thing and I think it works really well but I'm just not sure that I've ever seen a board game do that kind of thing yeah, it, um, I, I I have several thoughts on here. W one is that it, it also makes me think of the computer game Spore, where each each uh -huh. section of the game had really, in a sense, a different rule set. Mm -hmm. And I think most people agreed that every single one of those phases of the game was unsatisfying. And mm -hmm. I think that's one of the, I think that's one of the major problems with what you're describing, Tom, is that. Um, you, 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 if you're spending that much sort of design time and energy on creating, in a sense, two games in one, they better be really fully fleshed out games, really, in a sense, independently satisfying things, but they also have to be very well integrated. Right. Um, and I think that's an extraordinarily challenging design task. I, I, I think I remember hearing Sid Meier once give a talk where he talked about how game designers shouldn't fall into the trap of trying to design more than one game within their game. Like, the, mm -hmm. especially in the context of Civ games, that that's an easy trap to fall into. Like, oh, I want to have a Civ game where there's also a really intricate um, battle system. This right. is, I think, one reason why he argued always vociferously against having a really complex you know, combat system in his Civ games, like, right. you know, the, the stacks of Doom versus, you know, you know, whatever, multi, you know, single units per tile or whatever. Um, and I think that's what he was kind of talking about, is that you're, you're just asking for people to then be unsatisfied with one element of your game, and then that's going to ruin the whole experience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. the, I, I think the game, and it doesn't quite do this, but it's flirting with the concept. Uh, there's a GMT game that came out earlier this year, uh, made by a veteran war game designer named John Butterfield, and he made a game called uh, Space Corp, uh, which starts out with you uh, trying to basically get to Mars. Uh, and it's a, you know, you're launching ships and you're racing the other players. Maybe someone goes to Mars, someone else is working on building a, a moon base, someone else is maybe exploring the asteroids. And whoever gets to, I think it's Mars in the first part, whoever gets to, oh no, whoever gets past the asteroid belt first takes a little token. And then we finish playing out this game, and once that we meet a certain number of achievements, like, you know, reach Mars, build a moon base, uh, build a certain number of space stations around Earth, we then flip the board over to a map of the entire solar system with the outer planets now modeled. And whoever got that token, because they got to the asteroid belt first, gets a minor advantage. And we now play the same rule set but on a different scale and with a new mechanic introduced, uh, we now play the game's second act. Uh, but we're using the same rules. It's just that now, as we're sending our uh, colonists and our explorers out, there are new rules for having to deal with uh, solar radiation. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's a completely new mechanic. And then mm -hmm. what happens is someone at a certain point launches people out uh, of the solar system. And once they do that, they take a little token. 
and we continue playing this solar system game until we meet a certain number of thresholds. Uh, and once those are met, we then bring in a second board, and we put that down, and this is now a whole set of star systems, like the, the nearest uh, uh, solar systems to us, like uh, Alpha Proxima and Alpha Centauri and all these, and we're now playing an interstellar colonization board game, which uses the same rules, it scales everything up, and now it introduces new rules for each point being a multi-planetary system. Uh, so there are three distinct stages that use the same rules, but they'll then fold in a new system, and they scale up things like the distances you're traveling and the, the weight and the thrust that you need. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that that's a fairly effective example. It's a long, drawn-out game. Like, it takes about as long to play as you would imagine, and it really whiffs some of the theming, especially in the, the third act. Uh, but mechanically, I think it's... I think it's a, a way to do this idea of a multi-act structure more effectively than the games we've talked about, like Jaws, or where you play two separate games, or Die Hard, where you're playing on new maps. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it sounds. I mean, it sounds super interesting. I, I, the 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 I think the the thing that's tempting about designing a game like that is that it's it's a really interesting way to a create. Uh, you know, kind of a narrative structure arc to a game, um, and then two is that it 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 can really kind of change up the pace of a game for players. Yeah. And you know, once they they feel like uh, like oh, this game, I kind of get what's happening here. I kind of I'm just falling into a pattern to suddenly shake things up and force them to play in a different way. And I think that that is that's really interesting proposition. It's just so I think it's hard to do well. Yeah. Yeah, and one of the things that, I, that it does do that I, I really like is this idea of, uh, which I think Bosk is trying to do as well, is you've played this first act, and then pieces of it you carry with you to the next act, and they influence what you've got. It's kind of like leveling up, uh, and now you're in this, this new act, but you've got cool stuff that other people don't have because of what you did in that first act. Uh, so... Yeah, so uh, Bosk, I think I'm done with it. It's pretty, uh, but I'd rather play two separate games than one game that tries to be these uh, two separate games. Right, so. right. Mm -hmm. uh, all right, Mike, you are playing something that uh, I really want to hear about. How many miniatures are involved in this? I believe it comes with 92 miniatures. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. So Real I quick could, question. Yeah. Does it have a, an effective storage solution for that many miniatures? Because a lot of games with those many miniatures, they just leave you to your own devices. Nope, it does not. So I got my, yeah. uh, my plano boxes ready to go. <laughs> All right. All right, so what is it? Tell us about this thing. I've been playing uh, Richard Borg's newest game in his Command and Colors series, uh, known as Red Alert Space Fleet Warfare. Uh, this is a series that started with uh, Battlecry, I don't know, 15 years ago. Uh, famously, was Memoir 44 was probably the biggest game, and also Battle Lore. Okay. Uh, and then in recent years, it's been all kind of historic, uh, Napoleonic, and ancient games uh, that haven't been real widespread. Uh, have you guys played Memoir, Battle Lore, any of this stuff? I, I know both of those ab absolutely. I didn't realize that they were uh, going into Napoleonics, but that makes. That makes more sense than Battle Lore or Memoir 44, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was really deeply almost obsessed with Memoir 44 for a period of time and bought a bunch of the stuff and 
it's kind of I still own all of it, but it's been lamenting on my my shelf. I don't get it down as much. And yep. and I I actually nowadays I, I really like playing Battle Lore Second Edition. I, I've pulled that out a few times, and every time I play it, I, I really enjoy the system. It reminds me about why I love Borg system. I'm 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 a fan of the system, so I'm excited to hear about this this new game. Yeah, are, are Memoir have... 44 and Battle Lore still uh, ongoing concern? Like, are they, those still getting content? Uh, Memoir 44 just had its first expansion in a really long time, uh, a month or two ago, that added uh, uh, airplanes, actually. Yeah, that's what <laughs> so, I thought I heard. Yeah, I yeah, can't imagine. Yeah, flight plan. Okay. So, uh, Battle and, Lore, and, I, don't, I don't believe Battle Lore is still in print. Um, no, it's it's dead. Yeah. Yeah, okay. that kind of had some licensing issues with Fantasy Flight and stuff, so. I don't know so he's possible. he's gone over to science fiction now. He has. Uh, so uh, his games involve um, a big hex board, uh, lots of dice, um, kind of think of it as a very light war game, something you can play in an hour or two. Uh, usually have a satisfactory conclusion, although randomness is, is a very large component. Uh, so Red Alert shifts that into um, science fiction. Um, it's very close to memoir in that it, uh, you know, it uses uh, units that are going to be multiple miniatures, they're going to have, you know, statistics on they can move this many hexes, and they have a range of shooting this many hexes, and then you chuck a bunch of dice to see what you hit, and then start removing miniatures. Um, now, is there still that's... that concept, and maybe I'm behind here, of mm-hmm. drawing a card, and that determines which units you can give orders to? Yes. So okay. the board is split into thirds. Um, for Red Alert, they actually have this cloth, uh, you know, it's a cloth map that is very large. I'd say it's three times as big as the memoir 44 board so mm. it takes up a big chunk of a table uh, and then every turn you're going to have a, a hand of cards and it's going to say move two units on the left flank or move one in the middle and two on the right so exactly like battle lore and memoir 44 yep yeah uh, then mixed in is a bunch of other cards that'll say move all of your fighter units or move all of the ones with a certain condition and and then there's you know even more specialized ones like repeat the same order the other side just did you know, right. mirrored, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, so at times you'll run into instances where I have a bunch of units on the right flank and I can't move any of them because I don't have a card to do so. And that's kind of a, a classic hallmark of this series, I think. Right. Yeah. Yep. And it's you know it's it can be frustrating, but it also is it's kind of a it makes it a little bit unpredictable. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's new in this game is they added a second deck called a combat deck, and combat cards give you some sort of modifier in the middle of the other player's turn or could be a bonus to what you move. Uh, For example, there's a card that says Ambush, and when someone attacks you, you play it, and you get to shoot them first before they even get to do their normal normal attack. So are there there interrupts like that in Battlelore and Memoir? Memoir did not have any like that. Uh, Battlelore had some stuff from a spell deck, but I'm pretty fuzzy on my memory of that because it's been so long. Okay. Uh, I don't, Hassan, did it have ability to play off turn in Battle Lore? I don't remember. I I honestly can't remember. I don't think so. I, I do think it was still the I go you go structure, mm-hmm. but like you said, with kind of a cool spell deck that that had you know boosting abilities and powerful board abilities. Yep. Uh, so they the way they control the uh, combat cards is with a new currency uh, that uses little star tokens, and a given card may cost two tokens to play or four. Uh, and then on the dice, there's a new one of the six sides is a star. And anytime you roll the dice in combat, if a star comes up, you earn more of those tokens. Mm-hmm. So you kind of are randomly getting this resource as you go. Uh, at the end of each turn, you get one more. Oh, and it uh, stores and, up then, I see. Right, like correct. like like mana in battle lore, right? Yep. Yeah. 
So there's some cards that are four or five of these tokens to play that you're not going to play until you save up for them. Uh, but they tend to be pretty powerful. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing they did is, uh, if you think back to Memoir, the dice had pictures. There's a little infantry dude and a tank and a grenade. And it kind of uh, told you what kind of unit that role would hit. Uh, they do the same in this based on ship class, whether it's fighter, mm-hmm. uh, what they call strike ship, which is kind of a middle level ship or a capital class ship. And you have to roll the appropriate symbol to hit that ship. But uh, there's another uh, generic symbol. looks like a little blast. And that is a wild. But if a ship that is smaller than the one you're targeting rolls that, the first one is ignored. Or if it's going up two classes, two of them are ignored. So Mm. a fighter can take out a capital ship. It just isn't very likely. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's kind of neat that they have these little shielding and and stuff. and then the other thing that these star tokens do, it gives you the ability to do a couple extra actions. For example, after someone shoots you, you can spend two of them to fire right back out of turn. Hmm. Or if uh, you destroy a unit, you can spend two of them to pursue and kind of move up your units and you know take up the space that was just uh, occupied by the unit you destroyed. So um, it has all, let's see, six or seven different types of units out of the box. Um, and then now are have... these divided into separate factions? There's two factions. It's okay. just basically it's a human civil war. Uh, so the miniatures look different, but all the stats are the same. Mm-hmm. And then they have a number of additional units you can order from their uh, website. Uh, but Wait, not the, all the stats are the same? Because wasn't that a, a, a fundamental part of Battle Lore is you played a different race? Or am I misremembering? Battle Lore did. It had different races. Uh, memoir was pretty close, except the tanks for Germany were better. Uh, and then in this one, they're fairly identical. Let me think. I don't think there's okay. any differences in ships, at least out of the... But it doesn't do any ship. crazy, like, racial asymmetry stuff like Battle Lore. Like, it seems no. like they backed off of that then. Correct. Okay. Um, so this game still does have the weirdness of, you know, you can't shoot through your own units, uh, line of sight issues, which makes even less sense in space. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there's no, yeah, yeah, as if there's no Z-axis in space. All right. right. Yeah. Just it's, shoot you know, over the battleship, dummy. <laughs> right. Uh, but I think it's kind of necessary for how the ships maneuver and how it all kind of works. Uh, it's kind of a conceit. You just kind of have to say, eh, okay. Right. Uh, overall, I was pretty happy this game. We just played once, um, kind of get used to the rules. Um, oh, I forgot one thing that they did add is uh, Battlelord had these purple flags on the dice, which were morale, which basically made other units retreat. Mm-hmm. They have something similar to that with this, uh, except they call it a red alert, hence the name. Um, so every time one of these comes up, if the unit got hit, they have to retreat two hexes. And if they can't, they start losing units. So if they get trapped by terrain or the edge of the board, if they can't. That's exactly like morale. (laughs) They just, they just renamed morale. Right. However, (laughs) if, uh, you get two of these red alert symbols, you have to add a little red alert, uh, token to your ship. Okay. And that shows that your ship has been damaged, uh, and it is less effective in combat. It rolls less dice. It moves less. And um, there's also a couple other just uh, minor changes based because there's some morale stuff based on if you're next to capital ships and so on that affects. Oh, OK. Now, but uh, then you, you oh, can spend your, your star tokens again to have your engineer repair it. Mm-hmm. You can also have your engineer uh, repair it like as it's happening. So you can consume these tokens to avoid this. But they're essentially kind of a sitting duck until you uh, activate them and spend some tokens to get rid of that stuff. Now, is the game uh, organized again into uh, scenarios where we each set up 
where everything gets set up and we each choose a side? Or is there any sense of anything more dynamic or building uh, and buying uh, units as you go along? So there is uh, uh, scenarios in the back of the book. Uh, there's a bunch on their website as well. Uh, the first two missions show you exactly what units to put where. And then after that, the, all of the scenarios just have, these are the hexes you can start in, and this is how many points you get. Okay. And then they have a, a list of these strike fleet cards. So you buy a, a card that's you know 100 points and includes three of these units and two of these. And you can kind of piecemeal it together. <clears throat> and then the way the, the kind of the tokens work, you put all your little unit tokens face down, not the actual miniatures, but just these little cardboard tokens. So you set up the whole board with what you purchased, and then you reveal to your opponent what you had. Right. So it's kind of a hidden setup, which is kind of cool. Uh, in space, terrain is basically uh, you can't go in this asteroid, and maybe this nebula <laughs> slows you down. Uh, is that pretty much what we have here? There's some asteroid tokens, <clears throat> excuse me, asteroid uh, terrain, mm -hmm. which uh, can damage you moving into. And then it makes you a little bit harder to hit because it's kind of getting in the way. Uh, and then there's some planets you can do, which actually are kind of cool because there are multiple uh, hexes that go together in one big planet. Uh, and then you can fight other planets in if you're both in the planet's atmosphere. And then there's modifiers shooting into or out of it. So if one's out of the atmosphere and one's in. Wait, but not like ground-based combat, though. No, no, no. It's just okay. it's kind of in orbit around the planet. I see. Right, right, yep. right. Mike, are the, are the scenarios objective-based um, in the oh, sense right. that you, you get victory points not just from killing enemy units, but you, for example, have to control a planet or something on the map? Uh, it's, it's, you get victory points for taking out enemy units. So, for example, taking out a fighter squadron is one. Taking out the capital ship is nine, mm. or the, the flagship is nine. Uh, but there are, uh, in the scenarios, things like, you know, hold this for two turns to get a victory point. Um, you know, one thing that I had always mixed feelings about with memoir is that because of that that focus on killing enemy units to get points, it led to some really weird sort of tactics, right? Like mm -hmm. you would you would do things in that game just to like kill an enemy unit that you wouldn't actually do, quote unquote, in a real battle, right? And right. one thing I liked about the battle lore sort of much more objective focus system is that it made you think kind of, I guess, more holistically about the battlefield and setting up your units in better positions and things like that. So it was still important to kill enemies, but you had to think about um, the bigger picture you were trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's in, while there are objectives, I don't think there are as many as there were in Battlelore. Right. Um, and you're right, it does that. It gets weird because, you know, there's, let's say your unit has uh, three ships. That ship is just as shooty with one miniature as a three. <laughs> right, right, right. So you end up right. starting doing with some weird stuff where I only have one miniature left, so I'm going to run away so you don't get my victory points. That's right. That's right. Yep. yep. <laughs> uh, and how yeah. do the miniatures actually look? Like, what, uh, is, it, is, it, is it a beautiful game on the table? Uh, yeah, it's pretty nice. A couple of my miniatures okay. were a little bit warped. Uh, I'm going to try the you know hot water thing to see yep. if I can straighten them out. Uh, I'm planning on trying to do just a basic kind of uh, dip paint, you know, just add a little bit of shading God, you're to You're going to paint minis? No, oh, I'm just going to dip them. <laughs> no, that's that's paint. You're paint. You're that you're a, you're a yeah, miniature painting nerd, Mike. <laughs> they they did uh, at least uh, you know each like one side is all red, the other side's all green, so you can and there are different mini different models at least, so they don't look okay. the same. So okay. Do you think they're going to put out expansions for this? Do you think they're going to try to introduce asymmetry at all, or or is it is it a standalone product? Uh, well, they have a bunch of additional units uh, you can order from their website. Uh, Richard Borg, this place called uh, Plastic Soldier Company now. Mm. Uh, you can order it all direct. 
And which is nice is the the base game on all the reference cards comes with all the stats for those two. Oh, yeah. to make you want to buy them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you don't <laughs> so, have to use a stupid printout from your computer too. So. so so you can build your own, in a sense, unique fleet then, like once you add in some of these like mercenary factions or whatever, right? Um, yep. You have a certain number of points to play with at that point. Yeah. Correct. And and uh, and Borg has, has hinted that there's a bunch more planned for this, uh, cool. but that's all they haven't announced much else. So. Cool. And this but, yeah, is currently it's... available in retail? Like, is this out yes. now? Yes. Yep. Okay. It came out two weeks ago. Um, I think it's been quite a while since any of his games have hit retail other than like, you know, the biggies like memoir. So I was kind of excited to see it coming in and I grabbed it cause I was always a fan of memoir. Yeah. Like Richard I, uh, Borg is back. Good. Yeah. My, my biggest issue with these games, and I don't know if you guys share this at all is, is just the setup time. Like I, I always feel like, um, I'm so enthusiastic to play memoir battle or, and then I start setting it up and I'm like, <laughs> Oh fuck. Right. Now I remember. <laughs> Like, I, 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 like, tell my friend who I'm going to play with, like, well, don't just show up an hour from now, you know, and then, and then when you <laughs> right. show up, start playing. Because you're right. It takes a while just to get all those minis uh, on the board. And, yep. Yeah. And and with battle lore, like, I was just sort of celebrating that objective system. But that, the way that they've designed it in there is, is so it just takes up so much time because there's like one side of the battlefield is set up with one card and an- another card determines the other side of the battlefield. And then you got to find all those terrains and pieces and the playing of it is phenomenal, but the setup is such a drag. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think there's a way around that, I guess. But, yeah. Um, I don't. And uh, one thing they did add on this, which is kind of nice is there's these little uh, tokens you keep behind uh, your miniatures that show you their stats so it's this little tiny oh. square. It shows how far, uh, how many hexes they move, and their their different shooting uh, power at different ranges and stuff. So that's good to have that information on the board. Like that was one of my one of my problems with miniatures is they're missing an opportunity to present the kind of information that would be on a token. So yep. good. So you All just right. move these around with your units, and then when you destroy a unit, I just give that to you, and it has the victory points on back. Ah, ah, right. Okay. Cool. So yeah. All right. So Richard Borg back with uh, Red Alert Space. What is it? Space, Space War- Fleet Warfare. I don't know if that could be any more generic if it tried. Yeah. Just, yeah, just, oh, just, oh. just put all the words. Yeah, all the words are in there. Can you yeah. guess what the two sides of the human factions are? Oh, God. Let me guess. Uh, the Royalists and the Nationalists. No, no. <laughs> the Terrans and the... Ah, um, oh, fuck. Uh, no, is I it, don't know. The Martians. Is it a Martian no. re- revolt colony thing? It's what is it? Not. It's not even that good. It is the commonwealth and the confederation <laughs> oh, oh my god no oh jeez <laughs> oh, they even begin with the same letter right at least... <laughs> it's so generic i like i read started reading the the fiction like i don't even know who the good guys are yeah whatever <laughs> all right so uh there we go richard borg's red alert space w- fleet, fleet warfare, warfare. Yep. sweet uh, and then Bosk uh, and Tapestry. There you guys have it. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks to talk about other board games. Uh, thanks for listening. I am Tom Chick. I have been here with Hassan Lopez and Mike Pullman. And we'll see you guys next time. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>